Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you have in your possession. And here's the deal, everybody, right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get The Flame Alphabet by today's guest, Ben Marcus, or how about The Complete Works of Edgar Allan Poe, or The Tiger's Wife by Taya Obret. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few bucks. I would appreciate that. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, they did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is the Other People program. This is the broadcast. This is the fundamental nature of the exchange. My guest today is Ben Marcus. Very excited about it. Uh, ben has written several books. He's written uh, books like The Age of Wire and String, Notable American Women, and now most recently The Flame Alphabet, which is uh, causing a stir and creating lots of excitement in the publishing world. Uh, so The Flame Alphabet, it's available now from Knopf. It's a novel. It's available from Knopf. It's not pronounced Knopf. It's Knopf. So Ben and I are going to be talking about a whole bunch of different things in just a moment. But uh, before I begin, I figured I would do my thing and I would talk for a little while and I would let you know uh, what's going on. And uh, I guess what's going on right now, uh, this instant, is that my in-laws are in town. Uh, they arrived yesterday after driving across the country from Minnesota. And they're going to be in Southern California for about a month. Uh, that is the plan. Uh, they don't know quite where they're going to be yet. Uh, there's been some talk of Palm Springs. There's been some talk of San Inez. Uh, everything is up in the air. They are improvising and uh, floating around bohemian style. And so my mother-in-law just showed up at, uh, at our apartment, 
and she has a shoebox with her. And inside of the shoebox uh, is a variety of, of stuff. It's a big box. Maybe it's not a shoebox. But she's got a variety of stuff, including an old doll that my wife had as a child. Kind of a very creepy-looking doll that plays music when you wind it up. Like the kind of music that might uh, appear on the soundtrack to a horror film. You know? It looks like the kind of doll that might attack you in the night. And then otherwise, uh, in, inside of the box, there were several rubber Smurfs and some uh, porcelain Disney figurines. And I should mention here that this is kind of a ritual. This is, a, this is an actual ritual. My mother-in-law uh, likes to try to embarrass my wife by unearthing the artifacts of her childhood and then presenting them to me. Like, we've, we've been through this on, on multiple occasions. Uh, and I should mention, uh, you know, that my mother-in-law keeps everything. And, and, and I mean that sincerely. There is nothing that she does not have. Uh, if it belonged to my wife in her youth, then it, it remains to this day in their house in Minnesota somewhere. And uh, in this in this manner, my uh, mother-in-law reminds me uh, a bit of my paternal grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, whom I called Pops. And uh, he saved everything, too. And I can remember visiting my grandparents, uh, you know, as a boy uh, down in South Louisiana, down on the Gulf uh, in Bayou Country. And I remember wanting to ride a bike one day. I was bored. I wanted to ride a bike. And, uh, and so Pops went into his garage which was just stuffed to the gills with everything that he had ever had, ever. You know, there were no cars parked in the garage, obviously. It was, it was just a storage facility at this point. And it was a storage facility of mind-boggling density and strange organization. There was a system to it, uh, but nobody understood that system except for my grandfather. So he actually, he went in there, I remember this, and, and he actually found, uh, I believe up in the attic region, my father's bicycle from when he was in elementary school in the 1950s. And it was silver, and it was rusty, and it was antiquated, but it still worked. And I was able to ride it around the neighborhood. And uh, I remember my dad was sort of amazed by this and horrified by it. Just the fact that my uh, my grandfather was still in possession of his childhood bicycle, uh, you know, 40-something years later, almost 50 years later. You know, the thing hadn't been touched in decades. Uh, but he'd kept it just in case, you know, for an occasion such as this. So uh, much the same is true with my wife and with her mother. And, uh, you know, just to give you an example, uh, I remember being up in Minnesota a couple of years back uh, in Minneapolis visiting my in-laws, and uh, my mother-in-law walks over to me as I'm sitting in the living room on the couch watching television, and she hands me my wife's retainer from when she was in high school, Uh, and then she also hands me a plaster mold... (laughs) of my wife's teeth that had been taken, I believe, at the orthodontist and was saved, you know, all these years by my mother-in-law in a box somewhere. So this is the level of curation that I'm talking about. It's a heightened level of saving and uh, of sentimentality, I guess, you know, hoarding, some might call it, or pack radishness, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, it's a bit unusual, I would say, and, and you know, it, particularly in the context of me. Because this is like the opposite of me, uh, which I've talked about before. Just the fact that I kind of have the opposite affliction. You know, uh, rather than wanting to keep everything, I want to throw everything away, including valuables. I don't care what it is. Nothing would make me happier. Uh, I'm generally made anxious by the accumulation of stuff. And I think I'm even made anxious by 
any kind of uh, sentimentality that I might feel about an object for some reason. And, and, and it even goes so far that I have fantasies of shaving my head, which I've talked about. Uh, you know, I don't even want the accumulation of hair on my head. I want nothing. I just want to live in my fantasy house, which will be made almost entirely of glass, and it will have polished concrete floors and almost no furniture. Uh, it will be like a museum, and uh, I want to be completely hairless. That's what I want. And I'll wear a unitard, and I'll wear New Balance running shoes. How does that sound? And I'll walk around my glass house. Is that an appealing image? Am I getting through to you? So uh, anyway, that's what's happening. I've been up since 4.30 in the morning for some unknown reason, and uh, I think I'm a little punchy. My in-laws are in town. My daughter just inherited a vast collection of rubber Smurfs and porcelain Disney figurines, but I don't think we're going to be able to keep the doll. Uh, she was a little frightened of the doll, and frankly, I was too. So uh, yeah, and just to illustrate even further this thing that I have, just to you know, kind of hammer it home even further, this desire I have to rid myself of all stuff, uh, I don't know if you're like this, but when I go grocery shopping and I come home with the new groceries, uh, I always go through the refrigerator and all of our cabinets and I like methodically dispose of any food that is anywhere near its expiration date. Uh, and my wife teases me about this, just, just like my militants about this. But I'm convinced that I'm correct on this one and that my approach is rooted in deep wisdom. I do not want rotting food in my home. You know, like, what's worse than old food? Uh, so, like, you know, it does present some conundrums and even some moral dilemmas. Like, if the expiration date happens to be two days away, like, let's say I have a new bag of spinach that I just bought, and then I come home and there's an old one sitting there in the fridge, and it's got, like, two days left, it's gone. It's gone. And I realize that's wasteful, uh, but it's a calculation. You know, I'm figuring it's not going to get eaten in the next two days. Or someone's going to reach for the new stuff. So what am I supposed to do? You know, I don't want to waste, but like practically speaking, am I supposed to like walk out into the into the city of Los Angeles and find somebody to give this bag of spinach to? You know, like like what homeless what homeless person really wants a bag of spinach? Honestly, like here you go, dude. You got two days. You got forty eight hours. Good luck with it. It just doesn't, you know, as much as it, it's like, it seems like the correct thing to do, it's really hard on a functional, practical level. So, you know, I'm just opposed, I guess, to the accumulation of uh, perishable goods and potential rotting, and therefore uh, I will dispose of it in cold-blooded fashion. Because there's nothing worse in my mind than when a house or an apartment smells. That's how I feel. I'm conscious of that. And I remember it kind of distinctly from when I was a kid. Like maybe it's rooted in this. You know, certain friends of mine, you went to their house and their house smelled bad. It smelled like rotting food. It smelled like putrefaction. It smelled uh, unkempt. And then by contrast, other friends, you went to their houses and it smelled like cinnamon or eucalyptus or something or, uh, or like blueberry muffins. And it was, it was pleasant and you wanted to be there and I guess what I'm saying is that I want my house to smell like cinnamon and eucalyptus and uh, blueberry muffins. And I don't want my daughter bringing her friends over uh, in the years to come and her friends thinking to themselves, you know, my God, <laughs> my God, this place smells terrible. These people stink. I don't want that. That's all, that's all I'm saying. I don't want to smell bad. You know what I mean?
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, welcome. Thanks. And uh, we were just talking before we came on the air here about uh, David Markson, so I kind of want to continue that. Yeah. Uh, you were telling me that you actually interviewed him. Yes, I tried. I am a huge fan of Markson, and this was a few years before he died. I had written about him a little bit in uh, an essay about lyric essays, I think, for The Believer. And he was always some, I remember when I was in graduate school at Brown they tried to bring him up to read and I heard he was sort of really didn't like to do that he didn't really like to come out of his house and I actually had never seen him and never met him and he wrote me a little note I think of thanks for something I I wrote about him and so I pitched an interview and called him and we talked and uh he he's very smart very formidable and and I think like a lot of writers didn't quite want to really explain much, which I think is, is fine about his work or about his life or both. You know what I'm saying? I, with, with I didn't, yeah, I didn't really ask him anything about his life. You know, with his books, he all of a sudden started, I think the book he started doing this in was reader's block. He started writing in this list way. Essentially the books are lists of people who were either anti-Semitic or who killed themselves. I, mean, I think that sort of literally summarizes what his books are about. They're just <laughs> lists of these people. And it looked like a totally radical departure to me. It was. But yeah, but like this is the thing, because I'm a Markson fan. And yeah. I came to him a little bit late, you know, but man, when I read it, I was like, this is it. Like, this really moves me in ways. Like, why incredible. is it so moving? Why are people right. latch on so emotionally to this work that seems... Uh, on the surface, so unemotional. And I, I remember there was a Times review, I think, of Reader's Block that said that that there aren't any real characters in it. And I was just thinking, you fuckers, man. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? You're going to apply that standard? It just wasn't even pretending. It wasn't like he tried to have characters. Right. It, that's just not what he did. It's fine not to like it, but to sort of say, if only there were characters in right. this book. But yeah, it's mind-blowing, that stuff. It is. 
it, and it's hard to figure out why is it so poignant. It's so sad because you could read that same information and probably not even care. And I think it's the way he wrote those sentences. Just there's no syllable out of place. Like there's something so tight. His phrasing severe. is beautiful. Yeah. And like, this, yeah, I mean, every line seems so carefully phrased. Right. And then like just the placement. Like, I mean, if you, if I look at it, like kind of like collage, you know, collage can so easily be misperceived as accidental. Yeah. You know, like, oh, it's just slapped together and yeah. it's haphazard. But and with, some collage is. And some collage <laughs> is. But, like, you just get the sense with him um, that there was quite a lot of care. And I think I read somewhere that he was doing uh, note cards and that he kept everything on individual note cards and would sequence them. Yeah. That seems to make sense, like, from a construction level, you know. And when you read him, you feel as though he's this repository of really, really awful events and awful things people did or said as, as a, he's like this weird encyclopedia and he's spitting it back in it. That book of his, um, Wittgenstein's mistress, which was my introduction to him is like a, maybe his second or third book, um, is this, you know, this guy is the last guy in, on earth and he's in a museum and he's sort of essentially trying to empty his memory of everything he has ever thought. And it's sort of elegiac in a way, and it's just this, it's like data, and it shouldn't move you, but somehow it really does. Like, it's all the things you're not supposed to do when you write fiction. You're not supposed to just give information. Yeah, well, no, and, and like, you know, the, for me, because I've like, I really have thought about this, and not, not too long ago, I wrote a thing for the millions about like the year in reading or whatever, my yeah. year in reading. And oh, yeah. I mentioned that I'd read like Markson in a huge wave. Wow. And, uh, one of the things that I kind of decided about it or that I landed upon was the fact that he, that he is kind of like, uh, he's sort of preparing himself for death in these books by yeah. cataloging the deaths of others. And he's also trying to make sense of art in relationship to his life. And, you know, one of the things, uh, just as an example that really strikes me about the books is how, how carefully and often like with humor, at least for me, kind of dark humor, uh, he catalogs how vicious artists are to one another. Oh yeah. Like the awful things they say about each other and like, you know, well, no one seems to be spared either. You know, you almost think let's come up with a list of people. Markson does not actually have some dirt on him. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Is there anybody left? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like, it, you know, it's, yeah, you, you hear, you read like Ralph Waldo Emerson saying something nasty and it's like, <laughs> you know, it destroys me, you know, cause he's like, he lives like a, like a literary saint in my life. But it's but, funny. Did it ever occur to you that, Maybe Markson made some of that up. I mean, you read it and you think all these things are totally true, right? But do you know they're true? That's a good point. You know, because I, like I like to falsely attribute stuff, particularly to Emerson. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say, you know, you hear some bad thing that Emerson said, I'm wondering like, hmm. Yeah. But it does seem with Markson that it's true. I feel like it all is true, but it's rough. It's rough. It's a rough accounting of history really is what it is. You know, in, in some sense, these books are so different, but it pops into my head the Nicholson Baker book, Human Smoke. Did you read that? I haven't yet. No, is that the one about World War II? Yeah, but he, his approach to me is so mind-blowing. What he does is it's a lot of short entries that essentially encapsulate or summarize what was going on on a certain date. In essence, what would you have read in the newspaper if you were alive then? So... He seems to be putting you into uh, – he puts you back in time. He doesn't use any real overview or larger perspective, but he'll point out what the Times said on a certain day. 
and what Roosevelt was doing or what Churchill was doing and where he went or where Hitler was on a certain day and what somebody said. Actual history? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's not- totally, no, it's impeccably researched, but it's just these little capsules and you move through it in, in, uh, in, in a timeline as it's happening and you see how, you know, now we have this big, broad overview Sorry about that. That's um, all right. of what happened, but you wouldn't have while it was happening. You would maybe be somebody reading the New York Times or uh, – and, and Baker closes everything down and gives you just a little bit of data. And, of course, you can't help measure it against the real data you have when you see you know, Hitler having a meeting – it's not just a meeting, right? It's, it's, it's a grand evil plan. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't even need to be said. I love the way that was written. And I feel like, like Markson, it's almost just this beautiful attention to information. That's it. And, of course, it's totally stylized. Markson is like this amazing stylist. He would have been great on Twitter. And, I mean, I don't mean to reduce oh, him. Man. I don't mean to reduce him. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you know, you wonder... You, I just wonder what he would have done. I mean, if yeah. he did it, I doubt he would have ever. Does anyone do that kind of thing? Just sort of like they. Pro- I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I, the thing about it is that like it's cataloging, but it, there's something artful about it, and you have to be so unbelievably well read. Yeah, like you know what I'm saying, just to find these things because you know it's not slapdash. There's like a thematic consistency to what he's putting together, and so you have to find certain things. Right. Not just anything that's interesting, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's one of them. I forget which one. One of the Marxians. It's essentially just either people who were anti-Semitic or people who killed themselves. And it just seems like he's going back and forth. And <laughs> it seems like he could write like ten of these. Like he's just got so many examples. Yeah. Well, it's, it's sad that there are so many examples. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is very sad. But uh, I mean, yesterday. I mean, we're recording the day that we're recording this. I think yesterday, Mike Kelly and Don Cornelius both took their own lives right here in Los Angeles. I heard. So I mean, it's just yeah, you know, it's a pitfall in uh in the arts to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about experimental. I mean, we're on the we're on the experimental fiction track. Sure. Um, which obviously has some relation to your work and your approach to fiction and everything else. Like, um, do you, like, I, I don't know, like, where do you place yourself in that whole argument? Do you place yourself in that argument? Uh, do you feel like um, traditional publishers or traditional uh, media outlets don't do a good enough job of embracing the idea of experimentation in fiction? Do you know, do you feel like there's like a, Uh, a stasis that we need to break out of? It's a bunch of big questions, a bunch of interesting topics. I sometimes would like to simply not play. (laughs) There's a part of me just that wants to say, look, I'm just writing what I like to write and that it's not some calculation. It's not some attempt to be other than I am or to uh, really do anything other than write something that actually holds my attention, doesn't put me to sleep or doesn't make me feel like a huge burning fraud, which I might just anyway. So partly it's difficult then to say I'm experimental after, because given the way I feel when I work, it's, and I also think that the word has been used sometimes in a kind of derogatory way. You know, writing is interesting in that there's a kind of fence around a very specific kind of writing that gets no other label other than, let's say, literature. And it would tend to be the sort of novel Jane Austen wrote, and it still gets written today. And it's a great model, I think. I love reading those books. 
But when I get confused when I start thinking of this big question in terms of something like painting or sculpture or installation art or video art, suddenly it's like, wait, what? Like, what is – like, what's – what, what's the analog? In, in some sense, ambition or the the desire, however foolish, to try to do something no one else is doing, however totally idiotic. Right. It, it's kind of a given in a lot of the other art forms, isn't it? Sort of. Or there's, it seems more permissive. I mean, I was, I, I was going to ask that as a follow-up question because it's like you look at the other art forms and then you look at literature and it feels like literature – uh, is more resistant to that kind of experimentation. And maybe maybe the devil's advocate thing is, well, actually, language is a technology. It's a tool to make people feel things. We tell stories in order to satisfy all kinds of deep desires. And maybe everything that had to be figured out about how to do that best has been figured out for 150 years. So if you're going to do it now, you're sort of just an idiot to pretend that that didn't happen and that it it isn't the best way to reach people and you shouldn't waste your time like fucking around and trying to make up a new way because no one cares no one wants to read that and it, all the work's been done for you so you know what join the team put on the uniform and just start to play uh but it's also it, it's sort of hard to really feel that or i mean i think some people just feel it naturally they're they're they have kinds of stories to tell so the way they're going to do it isn't something that they wring their hands over that much and i think for better or worse i was somebody when i was first writing that i just couldn't i didn't have a real native relationship to that approach of just like you know john got out of his chair and left the room and drove to work and at work there was no coffee and you know, that kind of thing. Like I just, I don't know, like to me, that wasn't what you were supposed to be doing. Um, and oddly, like suddenly if you're not doing that and then you're called experimental, it just feels all a little weird. On the other hand, I feel like I've been given, um, a lot of great opportunities. I feel like I've gotten lucky and I've had my stuff published and I've had some of it reviewed. And so, I mean, people do seem concerned to catalog it and to wonder about it. And with my new book, there seems to be some sense because it's more narrative that I am I forsaking the experimental by writing right. narrative. Right. And I think, well, look, we use language to make other people feel things. There's a lot of ways to do that. There's this big toolkit. And I just, there were some things I hadn't tried. And I, like what? Well, like um, a propulsive story, a single narrator who has to tell the whole story so the, I can't wrest the story away from him and suddenly, like, go into another character's head. I have to restrict it. Uh, Time moves quickly, that kind of thing. I mean, I, I earlier would have written. Are you, are you saying, you know, just before you continue, are you saying that maybe you were trying to embrace. Um, you know, fictional conventions that might typically be associated with genre as opposed to literary, or is it does that take not even too- genre, but just maybe literary? Uh, it's just I I wonder if let's say you know narrative belongs to so, like does it belong to realism? Does it belong to anybody? Or aren't there just different ways we could write and different strategies? And I guess I like to think that you don't have to decide, but on the other hand, I, I feel. You know, my first book, The Age of Wire and String, had a bunch of sort of fictionalized encyclopedic entries. It didn't have a story per se. It didn't really have characters. It had some recurring kind of images and things like that. And it was considered 
by some experimental. It was essentially ignored when it was published. It got some bad reviews and then it was ignored. Then I published my second book and I got a lot of like, oh, your first book was amazing, but now you're already not as experimental as we want you to be. And I was <laughs> you just can't like, please anybody. Right, right. And, you know, so I think that there's, I noticed this kind of retrospective, like corrective stuff that goes on where people will suddenly appear out of nowhere to praise something you did 10 years ago and hope you just go back to that. And a lot of that has, you know, in a, in a way, like I felt like I got kicked out of the experimental club and I definitely was never even invited to the conventional club. I just feel like, well, I'm just floating or buried or whatever the metaphor is between those places. So I don't, honestly don't care. I feel like as long as I'm trying to like literally write to my absolute limit and, and make it good in the way I want to make it good. I just, I've, I can't care about what it's called because I don't know what to do with that information. Well, and it's not like, and you don't sit down thinking I'm going to write experimentally. I mean, that's, that's absurd, right? I, I certainly don't, but you know, a little while ago in an interview, I got asked if I considered myself experimental and I said, I guess stupidly, it was like, does anybody actually call themselves experimental? And it turns out a bunch of people, at least on this blog, did and they were pissed off. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't realize that. I also I sort of thought like if you say I'm an experimental writer, it's it's essentially just like saying I am a super badass motherfucker. Right. I'm like, on a bl- I'm, I'm on the cutting so edge. Badass. <laughs> <laughs> like I just seem slightly arrogant. And so on the other hand, it probably is like a useful description for some people. It's just been used so differently and sometimes so maliciously or dismissively that it's just been gutted. It's just been like harpooned and gutted and bled and burned. And but you do know, you away. do know when you're writing. And, and the thing is, it's like, you know, you have to have a pretty encyclopedic understanding in, uh, of literature, but you do know when you're writing that you're trying something that you maybe haven't seen in a book before. Do you know what I'm saying? But you, you personally haven't seen, you have had like maybe that experience or I guess it might be hard to have because just about every little thing has been tried that's, in I mean, some form. That's kind of a, an interesting way to put it. Uh, you know, sometimes though, I think of myself as woefully underread. I feel like when I was younger, I read just compulsively, and other things come up, and, and you have to go to work, and you have to you have you kids, know, you and, have kids, and yeah. and and you have to write. And sometimes I think, you know, I could I could write today, or I could read a book. <laughs> and unfortunately, I just feel like I'd better get my writing done. That's how I, yeah, I mean, but I remember, I mean, I, th- I, want, I want to say it was like Norman Mailer, but like in between books, he would go on these reading binges. Yeah, which I think is is super healthy. And I'm doing that a little bit now. And it's it's a little bit exciting to sometimes also just, if I if I am reading a book I have to teach, it's, it's one of the worst things in the world because... You can't just enjoy it mutely. You're mm. you're worried about you're deconstructing, or just I, I imagine that I have to carry the ball in a discussion about it and like draw people out and find out what they think. And it's it you find yourself reading, looking for little chestnuts that you're going to polish and throw at people so they can talk about it. And so I, I feel like some of my favorite books have been semi ruined by having to teach them. It's, yeah, it's kind of. You it's show almost, up and people are like, "This sucked. I hate this book." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> Aside from how you felt, yeah. <laughs> what about what you thought? <laughs> right, right. It was like, what books are those? I mean, can you think of one in particular that you loved, but then was ruined by teaching it? <laughs> well, ruined is strong because I, I do recover my enthusiasm. But you know, students are interesting, and in you know, they they probably. Sh- 
they, you know, they should be honest about what doesn't reach them, what doesn't move them. I've, and so I've taught some, well, I've, I've taught Markson and had him really refused by people. I've taught Thomas Bernhard or Diane Williams is a writer I love. And some people read her and they're just changed forever. And others feel like it's a foreign language that they haven't been taught. So there's always examples of this and, uh, I mean, so almost every book I really love, there are always a few haters. Right? But you know, okay, okay, because this is—I had this conversation with a friend not too long ago, and uh, it was just like the last weekend, I want to say. And I was saying that some of it might just be a matter of taste. Like sometimes a yeah. writer just doesn't hit a person in the yeah. right way, and that's it. But I think some of it sometimes is a function of where you are in your life. Have you ever had the experience where, like, you read a book or you pick it up and you can't access it, yeah. almost to the point where it's indecipherable? And then you pick up that same book like five years later and it, and it, it makes perfect sense. Like, I think it's totally true. I think in, in some sense you've hit on something that's really interesting to me of just reading the exact right book at the exact right moment. And sometimes in teaching I kind of think about that if I'm reading a student's writing and I think, so what would just kind of just blow them away now? Right. And it's interesting to try to guess. Uh, and it's sad too. I don't know about you, but it's harder to have that experience you know, I read things and I can admire them and get engrossed in them, but it's harder to have that almost life-changing experience where you just are destroyed and remade by a book. As a function of age, you think? God, I don't know. You know, it's, it, I, I mean, maybe it's, I'm just not reading the right things or maybe no. because I'm trying to write, I feel too protective and I don't let something in. I'm just not sure. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And like, not only that, but like, I'll pick up sometimes like, you know, books that I've loved in the past in that way, yeah. I'll sort of use as like desk references or like, you know, touchstones, but I'll turn around, I'll spin around in my desk chair and I'll, I'll pick one of them up off the, off the shelf and I'll open it and I'll read it and I'll be like, it's not the same anymore. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like something that I yeah. loved and it doesn't, doesn't diminish my love for it in a total sense, but like, yeah, I could not get through certain novels that when I was 15 or 22 you just or, ate up. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. a, you know, I think sometimes that's just the way that it goes, but, um, or, or maybe we're just old curmudgeons who can't you know, find our youthful enthusiasm anymore. I don't know. We've damaged our attention spans with the internet. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, I worry about that too. You know, that's like one of the things that, uh, I don't know. I, it's, it's almost like it's, it's so tired to talk about it because everyone is concerned about it, but you can't escape it. You know, like I have been getting up and trying to read uh, a book first thing in the morning, every morning before I get sucked into the computer. That's so smart. You know, that's yeah. like the only way that I feel like I can get to it. And then, cause at night, you know, I get up really early. So at night, by the time I go to bed, if I start reading, I'm, yeah, I'm done. I know. It puts it's, me to yeah, sleep it's in a 10 sleeping minutes. pill for me too. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's, you know, it's, it's hard and it's especially hard, like with kids, uh, to know how to, you know, cause you don't want to make your kid like, uh, you know, Amish, not nothing against the Amish, but I mean like to remove all technology to me doesn't feel like the answer. You know, I don't know if no, like no TV I don't, I don't and no internet it, and like, I don't think it works. They'll find it. Yeah. Or, they'll, or though, when they get, they'll when they create get, internet out of your toaster while you're at work, you know <laughs> right. what I mean? They'll be like, I hear of this thing. Yeah. Or they'll turn 18 and go completely, you know, in the, you know, they'll know. go batshit. So like, I, I, it's hard to know like <clears> what the r correct thing is. Cause you don't want to damage, um, you know, irreparably your child's attention span by like giving them unlimited access to, I mean, my daughter's 17 months old and she's already playing on an iPad. It's freaky. I know my three-year-old essentially 
doesn't just play on the iPad, but it's also essentially his cookie plate. <laughs> so it's like yeah. he's sitting there playing Frogger or right, something, right. and he's eating his cookie. It's like, I'm never touching that iPad again. Yeah. It has become so disgusting. Yeah, no. And, like, the other thing that scared me was that she was, like, standing uh, by the coffee table. We had like a big photo book out there. Yeah. And she starts to swipe the photo book. I've actually heard stories of this. <laughs> like, like, sort of depressing. So awesome though. Yeah. You know, so she gets frustrated because the thing doesn't like, you know, move and make noises and stuff. Oh my God. It's so, it's just horrible. So we should it, all just hide in a hole. It's hard to think about, <laughs> but you know, that, I guess this brings up on, you know, to try to kind of tie it back into, uh, the task at hand, like, yeah. you know, the, the issue of children. Um, you know, uh, plays strongly into the flame alphabet. It seems like it's a running theme. It's something that's really at the heart of the book. Yeah. Like, were you thinking, uh, I guess you were thinking consciously about kids and your own children when you, when you were working on the book or was that inaccurate? My son had just been born. So he was zero and my daughter was four and a half. And, you know, in some sense, I, I like to think when I sit down to write that I have some ability to literally access a self that has nothing to do with my real self. And I think that used to drive me. I used to, I used to almost be, you know, speaking about being young and stupid, if we even were while I am now, I, I used to be disdainful of that approach where you would sort of try to write about your own experiences and turn them into story. I used to think that was, I don't know. I had a lot of problems with it. Like it was a shortcut? Yeah. And, and I sort of, I admired like the sort of Borges or Kafka or the approach that was about kind of, you know, it might feel recognizable, but it wasn't about one's quotidian experience. It was about something mythological and strange and compelling, but not really simply about like a kind of a memoiry sort of, uh, you know, gush. But... You know, more recently, I've started to wonder about all the stuff I was really dismissive of. You know, I was talking about this with a painter but friend. Can, like, can you give me an example of like well, a book? Like, or- like, well, I was just wondering about not 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 stuff as in book, but like ideas or ways of writing. So, like being dismissive of writing autobiographically, or saying to myself. I would never, because I teach writing, I would never be one of these guys who writes a story about a writing class. Or, you know, like these things, like these rules, it, suddenly you find you have them, even though you don't think you're like a person who has rules against anything. Right. And I was talking, and th- these things have piled up, and one of them would be writing autobiographically or writing like a totally domestic short story, like a kind of what I would call like a teacup and flower story, right? Like nothing really, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like stuff. I just think that's, I would never do that. Sure. But I, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a painter. He's in his late forties. He's done well. And in some sense he could probably continue to produce what he does and and do fine. But he, he just, he's like, I don't know what, what I'm doing. And I don't want to do this. And we were talking about how, we started to feel as though all these things we dismissed, we no longer were exactly sure why we'd ruled all that stuff out. And I was talking about it in terms of writing and he was talking about it in terms of painting, just like, you know, he's like, well, it was just unheard of to do, let's say figurative painting when he was kind of coming up. He was just like, it was just ridiculous. So ridiculous that it just wasn't even discussed. It just wasn't done in certain, let's say circles. And, he said what I really had been feeling was that now he's just essentially systematically going to do all the things he thought he shouldn't do. And suddenly there's like a, oh, it's your second wind <laughs> is to revisit this stuff you've dismissed with, for me anyway, now this is a long answer to your question. 
I, I realize that even if I do, let's say, take on the con- trappings of a conventional book, there's no fucking way it's going to be that conventional or it's not going to look like a Jane Austen book. It's still going to kind of reek of me so that even if there's no way around it, all the fear of that, like, well, if you write like that, you're suddenly going to turn into this generic bland thing that could be anybody. But in fact, you realize that you can't, you're not a chameleon and those are just tools that in fact, they're tools to unlock your sensibility, whatever that might be. And that's what you're stuck with your sensibility, but maybe with a different tool, it could be interesting. And so, you know, the thing with kids is I think the, the urgency and desperation and loyalty around them was, was a big thing. For some reason, I wanted to open this book, like literally from the very first sentence with a kind of almost impossible sort of moral moment where it's something like, uh, we left. We left. We left on a Tuesday when Esther was at school, so she wouldn't see us. I can't even quote the first sentence of my book. It's so pathetic. <laughs> <coughs> I did write it. I swear. <laughs> but I was just. I have. I have a parent saying that he's abandoning his kid while she's not looking, and I just. In other words, the total opposite of what I would do, but feeling as though I was putting myself in that role. So even though it wasn't autobiographical. I had to then become this narrator who had done that. And that was a way I think I was using my own, you know, desperate love for suddenly these new creatures in my life. I was using it against myself. I was, I was sort of trying to attack it to see, I don't know, is that dramatic? The confrontation of fear. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and it, this involved a lot of me wondering what a what a good first page of a book was. You know, you're talking about how you open a book, and you know, sometimes it's just not there. And I think about that a lot, and I really think, you know, you have like half a second to get people's attention, if that. Right? I'm being sort it's of shrinking. generous. It's shrinking. Yeah. And I think about that, like, well, what is what's a good first line in a novel? Obviously, I don't know because I can't even remember mine, but. Um, and and what is it about it that's good? And, and you know, and that's in some ways why Markson is so compelling because I think there's something so commanding and severe and scary that comes off of just the way he writes sentences. Totally ineffable. Like I can't really say because there's there's just like no fat on the bone. And like I feel like I could rewrite one of his sentences and it would just sort of suck. I'd be like, oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a piece of journalism. So he does something with the cadence, and so I think I spent a lot of time wondering about how to kind of get the hooks in i guess right away and, and this did involve children but in a kind of perverted way in like in a way poking at my own sense of desperation and sort of loyalty and wondering what could ever make me willingly leave them well okay so that's what i was going to say because you know when you talk about that first sentence and you talk about uh trying to you know really arrest people's attention and how you have such a, you know a small amount of time it's a language issue on one hand, but I think sometimes writers might err in the direction of language. It's also like, what's happening? Yeah. Do you sure. know what I'm saying? Like, it feels like the, the situation that you've set up uh, is, you know, delicious. It's like, oh, shit. You know, like, what? Well, it's very strange, but it's also like primal, you know, extremely primal. <laughs> well, yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's funny because I can look at it now and find nine different problems with the way things got set up and inconsistency. So I think it's something that to me is still an evolving notion of what that opening should be. And when I finished writing this book, I instantly started writing some short stories where 
I actually think I was stripping it away even more so that you literally just launched into something that was quite, let's say, fraught without any pausing, no backstory, no like describing a character's face, you know, or like no real setting. I think I, I, I was feeling even more interested in trying to see what would happen with something that was really propulsive and also really a little almost worrisome. With the with the novel or with the short stories? With the both? short stories. I think yeah. it was something about writing this novel. I feel like I there was a lot that was new to me in terms of writing this kind of narrative and a lot I kind of learned it on the job or half learned it. And I remember literally I think I turned the book in. It was a certain day in August, like about a year and a half ago from now. And I had a good kind of working schedule going. But yeah, I was going to say, how do you it was done. And I was like, well, I kind of still want to work. You know, and I, I did then, the novel would come back to me every few months and I would have to do little copy edits and things like that. And, and I did more on that, but I, I just had this sort of left, these leftover fumes. And so I wrote some short stories. And in some sense, part of it was like, okay, these techniques still interest me, but I actually feel like I didn't quite nail them. And in a short story also, it's just pretty, it's like a limited sphere and you can focus way more carefully on the technique of it. Well, and just the pacing after doing a long, it's like after running a marathon, it's nice to run some sprints maybe or definitely. It, yeah, it really, really was. And, uh, it, I feel like oddly it, it opened up a different way for me to think about short stories having written this novel. How so? It just made me really think about plot and I really had never had, I mean, my short stories were a lot more about language and sort of strange situations, maybe linked or a set of strange images and, uh, I just hadn't really written very many, a couple stories with a sort of a ticking clock and things happening. Yeah, no, and it's like it's because I'm sort of the same way. Like I was, I was working earlier in my, uh, you know, career, like more elliptically, or I was less concerned with like the architecture in terms of it being like this whole solid thing. Like I was content to have it. Yeah. You know, impressionistic a little. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, no, but I find that, like, uh, the book that I'm working on now, like, is is different in that sense. And I'm finding, like, great pleasure in trying to build the actual structure. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, the plot, like, that part of it to me is, I guess I'm trying to challenge myself to do it because I didn't do it before. You know, yeah, that's I, I would say the exact same thing. Yeah. And, and then, you know, people say, well, now you're being less experimental. And, that's that's when I, I feel like I tune out when I start to hear stuff like that, you know, back to what, how kind of we open because I, I just – I have no ability to get any meaning out of what, what that is really saying. You know, when you're working, you don't sort of assign some kind of approach to yourself. It's just intuitive. You're sitting there and you're hoping this, like, awful crap is going to start to, like, <laughs> pop a little, right? And, right. And, and, you know, after the fact, you might say, yeah, it was this and not that. And, but it's so, it's so hard otherwise to know. And, you know, I guess I just wish sometimes it wasn't such a limited idea of what a novel might be. And... um I think it's changing. I think okay. So here's a question: like to try to to try to take maybe a slightly new angle uh, on this whole like you know technology issue is that like, I mean, because publishing the business of publishing is clearly at some sort of pivot point. Do you think that like maybe um, you know the concept of what a novel is might might as a result of that in some way have room to grow and change in a way that's positive? Or do you think that like it could potentially be ruined? <laughs> I think it, it totally could. And I think honestly it could 
before this, and it, you know, there was a time. I guess it must have been in the '90s. There was something called hypertext. Were you sort of around for any of this? It yeah. was essentially using the kind of mode of a website, but to write fiction. So you could have links within a page. This was a very new thing to link out of your text and have a forking text and no particular way you might read it. And uh, I was a. Uh, <clears throat> I had finished up. Uh, my studies at Brown and my advisor, Robert Coover, got pretty involved in this. And some people got excited about it. And uh, there was a lot of manifestoing, which in a way I think is a bad sign. I think if you have a new <laughs> art movement, like do the work first and maybe the manifestos should come later. So it was like people were really into the idea that this was going to unlock everything. You know, to me, though, the language, regardless of what technology you use to like shoot it into somebody's body – is is a still a very untapped technology. The, the whole idea of a sentence, it's still, there's someone in seventh grade right now who's just going to write sentences in some way that's just going to shatter us. And I think I like to still believe the technology is interesting to some degree. We can't not pay attention to it. We're, we're in this business and we're curious about it. And But, I mean, there's no possible way it's going to limit the artistic impulse to move people with language. I just can't see how there are going to be people who are going to grow up with it as the norm, whatever the new, whatever we settle on. If we even do settle on a, on a method digitally, like whatever reader dominates or however it works. The fact is language is still going to be something that we can use to make each other feel things. And I mean, in the end, that's what writers are doing. So, I I doubt it's going to hurt. It might, you know, the commercial side of it is is obviously going to change, and all the surface and the trappings will change. But will this affect the fact that we use sentences at all? You know, if that starts to change, right? Like if let's say the Twitter model of fragments becomes the going mode, and and the whole idea of a sentence is this sort of antiquated thing. Like I remember when I was growing up, we wrote sentences, <laughs> paragraphs. <laughs> then I'll come back. We'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll, right. We'll what? put a fucking tombstone in this thing. We'll be like, yeah, it's done. It's over. That's it. <laughs> you know, and who knows? It's like you know, who knows? Like I just, uh, I don't. I kind of agree with you. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think the like just the the design is too foolproof and it's too like fundamental to who we are. Yeah. But at the same time, like I, I, I mean, one of the bigger questions is like the marketing of all this stuff, right? Like I, I sort of, I've my book's only been out for two weeks, and I've been lucky in some sense in that my publisher has been supportive of it and has tried to sort of market it a lot. But like one of the other things that's happened is I've just gotten my ass handed to me with a lot of pretty bad reviews. And part of me, you know, this is defensive thinks, well, it got over marketed. I mean, maybe I had my audience and I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't even be saying any of this, but like, I shouldn't have a big publisher who tries to make a lot of people read me. Like maybe the people reading me are, you know, are enough and that a lot of other people are just going to hate this, and so don't overmarket something that they won't like. I mean, it's, it's sort of a weird thing to say because most writers might just think my publisher didn't do enough for my book. Most, that's, that's, all, that's, most writers, yeah, that's the overwhelming what you, that's majority. That's so here I am saying they, they, they pushed me too hard. <laughs> so yeah. it's a totally dement. I agree. It's like a demented thing to say. And, I'm, and I, I also want to say I'm, I, I, I love them there, and I'm grateful, and I'm grateful for their enthusiasm. But sometimes with some of the 
bad reviews, I think, yeah, of, I, of course you hated this, but like, why did you even review it? Like, it's so, I, like, I hate the premise. I hate this man. I hate his life. I hate his Do you family. find that they're mean? Do you find that mean like... The, yeah, I experience them as mean, but anyone does. You know, yeah. and I, I sort of have tr- I try not to really read them, but I'm, you know, I People still, tell you, friends. <laughs> yeah, almost like, people are like, congratulations on that review that ripped you a new one. Right? <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> like, you got reviewed in the Times, but oh. they ripped you, but you know, it's like still exciting. Oh, yeah. I mean, the ama- yeah, it's amazing to hear people's kind of like equivocations about it. It's so great. No one even reads it. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, and you bring up an interesting <laughs> point, you know, with regard to, uh, with regard to um, your numbers or like your audience, you know, however you want to quantify it. But it's like, I've had this conversation before uh, about like, you know, when you look at your own work, you're holding your own book in your hand and you think about the world and you wonder like, who are the people to whom this book would really register? Yeah. And how many of them are there? Like that to me is is an endlessly fascinating thing to ponder. Like, cause like, yeah. And it's easy to think, you know, if only more people knew about my work that they would like it. And I, I honestly, I've started to think, yeah, maybe not. Like, right. right. Like maybe the people know, <laughs> maybe it's finite, you know, it's finite. Well, it's totally finite. Yeah. But you hear writers talk about this, like who suddenly have an audience of millions and it's an interesting thing to listen to because then they say, well, now I feel responsible not all of them, and I'm totally generalizing, but something happens and suddenly they're being read by many, many, many more people. And it, it sort of gets in their head a little about what kind of book they should write next. No shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I feel that way just about like, I mean, not to compare myself to someone who's sold millions of books, but like with this podcast, as modest as it is. I look at the analytics and I start to go, oh shit, like people are listening and it makes me tense up. Does it change how you... Yeah, I mean, I I try try not to let it. And one of the things about like doing it out of my apartment is that it keeps things modest. Yeah. It's hard to to get too big of a sense of yourself when you're just kind of sitting here with this microphone in your own little space. But, you know, you still, you still, I still do feel a sense of responsibility and I feel a sense of responsibility as a writer, whatever, however modest my readership is. Like, you know, you want to make sure that whoever you're reaching... Uh, is pleased, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'll admit while I was working on this book, it didn't, you know, there were days when I thought that there would just, you know, the world would stop and there would be a big, you know, festival of biscuits over this book. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. and I think, I think like that- there'd be a new cookie would get invented because of this book. And it's just that little delusion that, you know, and you even see it at the, you recognize it at the time, but it gets you through the day and it keeps you working. But it's then sobering to discover <laughs> There will be no biscuit. There will be no cookie. <laughs> Not for you. But I mean, I, I, I don't think there's ever been a book that has been written, that has been seen through to completion, where the author did not have that moment at least once. Yeah. I don't I'm think sure it's possible. Right. Oh, I, I think that's totally right. And when I talk to writers, you know, essentially, you know, my feeling right now, too, is, you know, the book has only been out two weeks. It's like, I want this sort of, this part to end. I want to start to forget so that I can kind of go back in my hole and try to work again. Because in the end, you know, even let's say a good review, it doesn't quite, nothing's quite satisfying. Like there's nothing really that's going to compare to the feeling of working on whatever you were working on. That is much more interesting and in a way gratifying. And I guess it's nice to find that you've reached people and it's enjoyable, but it's somehow it feels really ephemeral. Yeah, no, and it's like weird because when you're working, it's like it's this weird tension for me between like when I'm working, 
I want to get this book done. Like right now, like I don't want to miss a day. I want to get the words. I'm just like, I'm fixated on it. Yeah. And it's a good thing. Great thing. It's a great thing. It's a great, you know, I'm eager to work every day. That's, I think that's incredible. But then there's nothing better than that. Right. But then the thing is, is that like, I'm like, I want it out of me. I want to, I want it to be externalized. Yeah. And then what's funny is that it is. And then eventually, um, you get to the point that you're at. And then you sort of look back, I think, kind of like wistfully, and you're like, that was the good stuff, the actual writing of it. Even though when you were writing it, you wanted it. Yeah, I know. Do you know what you see? I do, yeah. It's it's a strange tension. I I have have no advice about it. Well, (laughs) just the way it goes. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you work? Like in terms of, uh, I'd just be interested in terms of your patterns. Like I'm, uh, you know, all writers are different, but like are you an everyday person? Are you extremely disciplined? Do you work three days a week in big bursts? Well, when when I'm working on something, I have to really work. Work every day. I like to have long chunks of time. Uh, you know, what I have found, sort of sadly, in the last few years, is that if I go away, like for a few weeks, to a place like McDowell, like a writing colony, where you get a little hut in the woods, I work really well. There's no distractions. Your meals are <laughs> prepared for you. You walk to your studio. You know, that's all you have to do. So I, and, you know, and I turn off my internet. But at home, do yeah. they have internet at the McDowell colony? You, they have wireless at the library, but okay. you have to like you know walk there. And I, I actually, so yeah, you don't have it in your studio. And even actually, my cell phone doesn't really get coverage at my studio, so I can't even kind of like iPhone it. How do you get in there? What happens? Like, have you only been once, or is this some place you return to? I, I've been there a few times. You apply, oh, and you do. it's it's writers and composers, visual artists. Uh, Lots of different kinds of artists, and they have seasons, and you apply. And there are a lot of places like it. There's a place called Yado. There's yeah. places all over the country, all over the world. And I like uh, the name Yado for some reason. It sounds vaguely like you know, like uh, Star Warsy or something. It was a it was a nonsense word made up by the, a little girl whose dad started Yado. He was like, "What should we call it?" And she, uh, she I don't know, like this four year old girl was like Yado, and he's like, "Okay, done." Yeah, that's actually supposed to rhyme with shadow, so you're supposed to say yaddo, but people are so uncomfortable saying that. It sounds even worse than yaddo. <laughs> yaddo? No, I'm just going to say yaddo. Right. Yeah, let's bestow some dignity on it. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I, at home, I, I, I kind of have to get out of the house. I've tried to go to the library for a couple hours. I, I put on little, like, airport, you know, sound blockers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love those. Turn off my internet and, you know, hope for the best. Uh, so you write at the library? I do at the Columbia Library. I live in New York, and uh, I, I go across the street, Butler Library, kind of find a little little private nook or a little kind of cubicle yeah. table. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really can't do much at home. It's tough with the My movie. son's at home with his babysitter, and, you know, they go out a little bit, but then suddenly there's a play date, and there's, like, three, four-year-olds oh, just going nuts. That's coming. I'm, I'm already starting to, like, think about, like, where am I going to go? Don't, <laughs> yeah, don't, don't do play dates. It's just yeah, <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I mean, it's great. It's great for, for them. For them, right. Uh, <laughs> if you care about their needs right. at all. <laughs> I don't know. You might be on the fence about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, okay. so there's not much... I don't know, mystery or interesting stuff to say about how I work, just like anyone else. And then what about, you know, uh, I always like to ask writers about their their past or their childhood. Like like an, inter- like an obvious place that I always like to start is like, did you always know you were going to wind up in this racket or was it something you came to later? I found that I was actually announcing it at an early age that I was going to be a writer, which I had no, you know, I had no idea really what it was. But even, you know. How early are we talking? 
<clears throat> well, I have this memory. I think I mentioned this once in an interview, so sorry for the overlap. I've, I was hanging out with my friend Eric. I was like 11. And uh, we got into a little bit of streaking, you know. Mostly, I think, we just like took our shirts off and went running, you know, through the night in our suburb outside of Chicago. And somehow we ended up talking about what we wanted to be when we grew up. And, and I said, I, I just I surprised myself and said I wanted to be a writer. This was this is my origin tale. And, yeah. uh, but I went to, and I, you know, I wrote the, I wrote the bad kind of heart on sleeve love poem sort of stuff in high school, but really nothing much. And then in college I was a philosophy major, but I started to take some writing classes. At Brown? I went to NYU undergrad. I went to Brown for, I went and got an MFA in okay. creative writing at Brown. So. And you, but, you were raised in Chicago? Well, uh, up until eighth grade, and then we moved to Austin, and I essentially spent my high school years in Austin, Texas, oh, wow. and uh, then went to college at NYU, grad school at Brown, and then moved back to the city, waited tables for a few years while writing my first book, The Age of Iron String, mm-hmm. and then started to take teaching jobs. Actually, what had a job at UT Austin, then a job at Old Dominion University in Virginia, then I had a job at Brown for a few years. And then finally, I left Brown to go to Columbia, where I've been for like eleven years. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. So you're there. Are you tenured and everything? Yeah. Okay. So you're there. You're. <laughs> I am. Yeah. You're locked in. I mean, do you foresee yourself like finishing your career there as an instructor or a professor? I should say. <clears throat> it is. It's hard to imagine leaving. On the other hand, you know, we have two kids, and we're in the city, and the city is. We love it, but it's also it's super expensive, and you know, we we talk about moving, but. You know, then you just sort of look at your overhead and you're like, you, you can't just move somewhere without a job. And so right. uh, it would be it would be interesting to move at some point. But it's nice having job security, you know. Absolutely. And it's a great school. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's not a bad it, place to be. No, it's not at all. It's I, I like it. And uh, yeah. So, OK, so take me back a little bit because now, now I'm fascinated. You moved around You like you announced early that you were going to be a writer. Like what kind of of kid were you you know like were you fairly were you fairly normal or, or do you feel like boy i was really an intense weird kid or i think you know i had i had some inner life but i was also pretty always interested in you know having a lot of friends and i was really athletic like we were my brother and i <coughs> who are a year apart we were raised and we pretty much played the seasonal sports you know it was just like baseball football basketball I ran track and then in Austin in high school, sports were even more important. I played football. Would you? What position did you play? Uh, well, I was really pretty bad at that point. See, one of the interesting things is we, up until eighth grade, we were in Chicago, outside of Chicago in Evanston, and football with pads, like tackle football, didn't start there until high school. Oh, okay. And when we got, so we moved to Texas for, for me, it was ninth grade. And I was so excited to like finally play with pads. Cause we essentially were just playing like sandlot tackle football, which can be pretty rough. Yeah. It can be pretty rough. <laughs> and you know, you're getting to be the size and strength where it really, you can actually start getting hurt. Right. And actually I remember once <clears throat> there was some kind of like peewee league you could join, but it wasn't, it was like far away or something. And we were playing our padless football in this playground and some other kids wanted to play, so we got this big game going. And some of them were already playing tackle. And I remember getting tackled by one of them <laughs> who actually like had started to learn. You know, we had just we played. There was nothing to learn. You just played football, right? And he just creamed me, and it hurt. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> we get to Texas, 
And there was also this, sorry, this is a long story. There was this other thing in play where there was this idea when I was growing up that you didn't lift weights too young because it would stunt your growth. Did you, did Isn't that true? I thought that was okay, true. Is it true? All right. So anyway, yeah. so there was this idea that you could sort of start in ninth grade the same time you started with pads. So we, we moved to Austin, Texas, where they had been lifting weights since third grade. High school football. They'd been religion. playing tackle football since third grade. Yeah. And so we were – my brother and I were – fair enough athletes in in our world we were you know we would we would not be picked last like we were we right. were good and we were sort of you know we were tough and we were fast enough and all of that but we were just like a you know a whole different species yeah there are these guys you know other ninth graders in the locker room with just like huge hairy chests and just like <laughs> like, like they were on they, steroids they were, they were just they were just monsters so that's the backstory so i just i never i never caught up i mean <clears throat> i was i was just a joke on the high school football team in but Texas. do you think that that maybe like threw you into books or, and writing more i mean like sometimes that kind of you know stuff what it happens. threw me into water skiing i got really into water skiing and i competed and i actually did pretty well you're kidding me no in high school you like know. jumping stuff and all that kind of stuff or I, like- I competed in slalom so in the slalom course around the buoys yeah. and did a lot of barefooting i did some jumping so i'd go to these uh, water ski camps in like the middle of nowhere, Texas, these man-made lakes, which were totally calm, you know, and you would just ski and the wake would be all like brown from the mud in the lake. And, oh, wow. And you'd learn jumping and barefooting and all this stuff. And so, yeah, I was, I was actually so serious about water skiing that I wanted to go to college for it. My mom was just so <laughs> horrified. See, this is stuff I want to know. Yeah, I would have never guessed that. I should have started with this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I may have to return to this because you know, I don't know about the writing thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think you're doing okay. Uh, like, come on. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, I don't think I could now, you know, at this age, have a professional water ski career. Yeah, I think you might have missed your window. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, there's this school in Florida called Rollins College. I actually really want to go there. And it's some crazy party school where they're really good at water skiing. What do you do with it, though? I mean, is there, are, there, <laughs> are there actual professional competitions where you can make money? What do you do with a philosophy degree? I know, exactly. <laughs> to me, it's the same. <laughs> Point taken. So, no, it's obviously a terrible idea. <laughs> I, mean, it's a ter- I think even if you're the best in the world, you're making like $5 an hour. Yeah, no, it can't no offense be. to anyone out there, professional water skiers. It's not, it's not, a, and it's not an Olympic sport, is it? I don't know. It's funny because I realized a few years ago, like once YouTube got really rampant, that I was totally out of touch with what people were even doing because water sports do sort of change. There's different like techniques and uh, it was kind of cool to catch up and see like what people had figured out. And there's this, you know, like barefooting is, you know, you, you know, you have no skis and, and barefoot jumping Go, you go over a very shallow ramp because probably you just would just crush your face into this thing and yeah, die. Yeah. And so, you know, when I was water skiing, you would just kind of go straight over it and just like free. I never did this. It was considered really hard and really scary. And the guys would just kind of get rigid and hold and they'd jump, I don't know, like 20 feet, 30 feet, you know, because you're going fast. But their bodies just stayed in the position they were in skiing. And one thing I noticed they figured out, and I don't know who figured this out, but it's like a huge, like, da vinci level breakthrough barefoot <laughs> jumping someone figured out and you go over the jump and you throw yourself into like a flying position and just flop into the air like superman flight position still holding the rope holding the rope feet behind you like literally like superman flying through the air and you're just arched and you just get way more distance in the last minute 
you know, you're horizontal over the water, you bring your feet under you and you land. And suddenly they were jumping three times further. So I don't somebody know. had to be the guinea somebody pig. did that. I don't know if he got like a MacArthur for that. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be somebody awesome. one day is like, hey, what if <laughs> I think I think that's totally deserving of MacArthur. I do too. They need to, they need to be a little bit more I liberal. I wonder if any water skiers have gotten one. <laughs> they should have a year where they just give give that out to like really obscure athletes. I think so too. <laughs> um, so uh, before I let you go, I'm curious to know uh, about how you perceive your future as a writer and and by that i mean like yeah are you a person who plots uh your course going forward or are you just sort of like focused on like tomorrow <laughs> or, well, or today you, you know? know what's funny is having a book out getting a sort of higher level of focus positive and negative talking a lot about writing a lot all day every day on a book tour in a weird way it makes me just first of all long for writing itself free of all that and I, it, 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 it's, it is giving me a kind of a longer view. But if you see yourself getting criticized over and over for something, I'm, you know, I have to admit, I'm not someone who doesn't care about it. I, I'm not someone who's like, fuck them, I'm a fucking morons. Right, right. I'm like, oh. I tend to believe them. I'm, like, I, I'm yeah. very susceptible. I'll be like, maybe they're it's, right. Yeah, you know, I don't, I, I just, I don't traffic in that level of confidence where I'm, I feel so sure of what I'm doing. And so, but on the other hand, I don't think, it really works to just sort of address somebody, some random person's concerns. I don't, actually don't think that works at all. Well, and it also doesn't stop you from continuing to work. <clears throat> the question is, like, if people are all having these problems, and you know, how does that end up resonating over the long term? Is it really going to change what you do? And, you know, I, I'm finishing a collection of stories, which I'm kind of excited about. And I have a... Does uh, it have a publisher already? Or Yeah, it does. It's my same publisher. It'll be with Knopf, and it'll come out sometime in 2013, like in the summer, maybe we there's no date, but it's, it's essentially done. But I realize I want to, since now is such a busy time. I want to take some months into the summer to just cut some stories, revise some stories, maybe write a new one, two, three stories and see if I can make it better. And I'm kind of excited about that. And I also feel like doing that might help me refine my idea for another novel and I think I just feel this, I feel a real urge to continue and to try something different and to see what I can do in, in some sense. So I can return to that space of feeling a little excited about something again and not feeling like I'm judging myself. Others are judging me. It's just impossible to stay happy when that's it's going on. It's hard to you work, just, period. You can't, you, can't it's, you don't get much out of it. And so if you're working and no one can see it for a while, there's just a time when you can maybe take what you've learned or thought about and, and possibly process it a little or ignore it. Who knows? So I feel excited to work. I really, and I had this vague idea for a novel and I'd written some pages and I was sort of testing out what I'd like it to be, but I, it's super seedling. I was going to, okay. So I was going to ask you, it's not, it's not a hundred percent clear. And, and do you have like, do you feel like most of your uh, books have be have begun in a similar way, or does it change? Like sometimes it's like a character, sometimes it's the title. Like, do you have a? Do you start with a question? Like, is it the same for you? I, I think, in some sense, I have to start with a sentence or some language that feels like it can it can grow and be built on. But but at the same time, I'm I mean I I think I've been thinking a little more situationally, a little more story y than in the past. You know. Um, Notable American Women was a very episodic book with sort of discrete chapters about different things, about 
how to feel less. And it, it was sort of more faux nonfictional book. Like it, it was a book of processes and concepts and fake ideas. And so it was in some sense a lot harder to write because I, I couldn't just pick up every day and kind of continue. I would finish a little nugget of it and then have to write another one and start this whole new process again. I felt like I kept starting and finishing little books. Right. And, and they had so, to be completely different on the level at the level of voice and 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 and, and self-contained and and then oddly I don't really know why I felt like I was just publishing them as I went and there was you know but I just didn't know any better that was just what I wanted to do I guess. And so I don't really know if the next one will start the same way. You know, I always have a sort of fantasy of working in some different way that's more efficient or faster or better, but you know, then you're suddenly just working the same way you always did. <laughs> I, have, I think I have that fantasy too where like I'm going to have a book that just shoots out of me yeah. in like three weeks or something crazy and I mean, the thing I'm to waiting. Tell you, you know, n- no one ever, ever, that never works. I mean, people might do that, but there's, uh, can you think of any examples? Of- uh, I mean, it's like the Kerouac thing, but that's a myth. I mean, he, he had, I mean, On the Road theoretically yeah. was written quickly, but I mean, I, I think he was working on that book for a long, long time. Yeah, it's, and it's I think an sometimes you're doing preparation. I mean, it's fun. I think it's fun to draft quickly, and I did draft this one. How long did it take you? Well, I probably finished a first draft in about a year, which is really fast for me. Yeah, but I think that's. I mean, that's that's fast. But I'm just saying, like, I think that's also. Within the range yeah. of normal. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like some people say, write a thousand words a day. Well, then you'd have a novel in eighty days. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, and there is this thing, this like National Novel Writing Month. Thing. Right, NaNoWriMo. And <laughs> I have a really embarrassing story. They asked, they asked me to write. Uh, I guess one of the things they do is they they send out pep talks if you sign up to be one of these people. Uh huh. And I'm not knocking this, so I just I, I guess I agreed. So while people are doing this month of intensive work, they email pep talks <laughs> from people like me, I guess. So I, and my my pep talk was rejected. Was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I'm just so I'm actually really proud of it. What was it? Well, what? in essence, what I said is, look, word count is such a ridiculous criteria. Like maybe it's helpful, but do you really believe you're going <laughs> to like do, do a lot of work and, and, but then you're going to throw a lot of this away. And right. I was just trying to essentially my pep talk was, you know, get very stern, strict outside readers. You, an outside reader is not a family member or a friend. They're afraid or they're you're literally un- incapable of saying critical things. So, Somebody who you're not close to who's just going to really give you a serious read and build in time for revision. And it was just a bunch. I mean, it, it was kind of nuts and bolts. But but I, I take a big knock against this idea that if you just have, you know, this page count thing, word count, then you're fine. And they said, you know, that's a really important criteria of ours. You kind of can't criticize it. And I was like, <laughs> okay, let's just go our separate ways. Right, and, right, right. You know, and, and I actually think... It's a neat way probably to get a draft out for a book. So I, I, I had no problem with it, but I found in my pep talk that I was really not able to condone. <laughs> or just, and there's just like, you know, you're trying to keep it real. I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it, I mean, there's, you're right. You're going to write all these words, and especially if you're writing them all in a month, it's likely that like 80% of them are going to be excised, right? <laughs> or maybe, you know, I'm yeah. throwing a number out there, but... 
it would seem that way. It's hard to, yeah, it's hard not to think that stuff's going to all survive. But who knows? Yeah, who well, knows? And, and you know, if you, you know, ever if you ever wind up writing a book in a month, uh, you have to let me know. Like anybody okay. out there, please let me know if this ever happens for you. I want to talk to you. <laughs> You're going to get like 90 emails yeah, tonight. <laughs> um, ben, it's been great talking with great you. Great talking man. to you too. This uh, was fun. Best of luck with the rest of the tour and with, uh, you know, the next book and all, all the rest. But this has been great. Thanks. Okay, folks, there you have it. That's it. That's Ben Marcus. What a terrific guest and what a terrific writer. Go get his new novel. It's called The Flame Alphabet. It's out there now. It's available from Knopf in hardcover. And uh, it's the rare literary page turner. It reads with the propulsive energy of a thriller, but it carries the depth charge of ancient poetry. How do you like that? How's that for a plug? So Ben can be found on the web at benmarcus.com. He also has, I believe, a Facebook presence. This show has a website. Uh, it's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod. Com. You can tell me what you think. You can tell me a story, whatever you like. Don't forget to check out TheNervousBreakdown.com. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. You can follow it on the Twitter at TNB Tweets. And here, quickly, is my pitch. If you enjoy the show, if you're a regular listener, uh, I kindly ask that you please consider joining the Nervous Breakdown Book Club as a show of support. For only $9.99 a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every month. That's less than the cost of a book, and you get a book delivered to your house. The, uh, the titles are hand-selected by both myself and my buddy Jonathan Evison, and uh, better yet, I interview the book club authors on this program. So if you join, you can read the book, and then you can hear me in conversation with the person who wrote the book. Uh, if you have the dough and you'd like to help the cause, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar, and you can pay by credit card, or you can pay uh, via PayPal, whatever you like. And if you do this... Uh, I will love you for eternity. So before I go, uh, I would like to revise a little bit, uh, you know, or just like, you know, uh, add some clarification to the whole rotting food argument that I was making at the top of the show. Uh, I don't want you to think that I'm throwing away like pounds and pounds of good food every week, nor do I want you to think that I'm, uh, you know, completely obsessive compulsive about it. You know, it's just not the case. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm moderate. I'm fairly moderate. I'm just trying to hold down the fort, and uh, I'm just trying to run a good household. That's all. And, uh, and, you know, it's nice when things smell nice. That's all I'm saying. But what's interesting, you know, as kind of a side note, is that I don't like it when people smell too nice. You know, I want you to know that I'm not advocating for perfume or cologne. Uh, with people, I, you know, I just I don't want to smell them at all. That's kind of my preference. Uh, and if I do smell them, I just want them to smell like soap. That's it. But with a house, it's a bit different. With a house, I guess I want uh, I want flavors or I want scents. I want uh, I want some kind of production value. And uh, you know, if you ask anybody who's been a guest on the show, who's taped here in the studio or in the home studio here, uh, I do always try to have a scented candle burning uh, during the taping. It's, it's kind of a guarantee. Uh, in fact, I, I need to go get some new ones. In fact, I wonder if I, I lit one for Ben. I don't know if I did. Uh, ben, if I didn't, I'm really sorry. Uh, I just need to go to the candle store. And what's interesting about the candle store, <clears throat> the candle store, is that you can pay these days like 30 bucks for a candle. You know, like candles are expensive. Scented candles, a, a good one. You know, that, that seems like a racket to me. It seems a, uh, seems like it. It seems to me like they should be free. That's what I think. You know, it's just wax. 
think they should be subsidized by the government. That's my position. If I'm president, scented candles will be free, and every home in America will smell like eucalyptus and sandalwood. That's what I'm saying. So, uh, okay, clearly I'm overtired, and uh, I could probably use some food, some fresh, new food. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, many thanks again to Mr. Ben Marcus, and my thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. I will be back again soon with another conversation with another author just for you. In the meantime, please go clean out your refrigerator. Just do it. Just, ma- just do it to make me happy. Just get rid of all that old food and light a candle and make the world a better place. <laughs>